0: Thanks for joining us today on the Harvest Podcast. Before we go to today's message, we want to invite you to check out our website, www.harvestagokc.com. Again, that's harvestagokc.com. Now, here's today's message. We pray that it will bless your life as you listen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, I want you to go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to look at a lot of verses, but that'll be the main area that we're going to be in today. Before we get into um, the message in the series, I want to just kind of take a couple of minutes and and speak to the cultural issues that we've got going today. I, I really believe that this political season is going to go down as one of the absolute worst in the history of our nation by the time it's all said and done. This has nothing to do with who you're going to vote for, who I'm going to vote for. That's not what I'm talking about. But I think when we look back on the history of where we're at, we're going to wonder how in the world did we get there? As Americans, we've got this obligation to use the freedom that men and women have died to give us. We have an obligation to use that. And as Christians, we have an, a moral obligation to be involved in the process. Now, in the last election four years ago, we learned some pretty staggering things about us Christians. The evangelical brand of Christians, there are over 100 million of us in America. 100 million. Less than half of that are registered to vote. And of that, less than 25%, I'm sorry, less than half of the half, so less than 25% of the evangelicals in our country actually voted in the last election. Well, folks, as believers, Don't don't sit around and gripe and complain because of what's going on if you're not going to get involved in the process. Now, I would say that about anything. You don't like what's going on in something? Then get involved in the process and begin to work to make it better. So this election, to quote Gandhi, we've got to be the change that we want to see in the world. I don't know who's going to win. I wish I did. But one thing I do know, whoever does win is God's choice. God's choice whoever wins, okay? Whether it's the person you voted for or not. How do I know that that's the truth? Well, because in 1 Timothy chapter two, verses, in verses one and two, Paul tells us to pray for our leaders, those who are in authority over us, so that we can live a godly and peaceful lives. And then over in Romans chapter 13, Paul said that all authority was established by God. Whoever's in authority, that's God's person to be there. Whether you like it or not, whether you voted for him or not, It's what scripture says. It doesn't negate our responsibility to be involved in in the process. But what it does mean is we have a role to play. We've got to be engaged in the process. And I know the election's not for about six more weeks, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. If you're not registered to vote, you can't do anything. And you don't get to gripe on the other side of it. So to help with that process, you have to be registered to vote by October the 14th. Okay? By October the 14th. To make it a little bit easier for you, I've printed out voter registration cards. I've printed out all the information you need. There are sets. You need two papers. One is the double-sided piece of paper that gives you the instructions, and one is actually the voter registration thing. You can get them at the information booth. You can get them in the coffee shop. Either one, they're out there. If you're not registered or if you've moved, fill out the card and get the process done correctly so you can go vote where you live to make it easy. Because anything that's not simple and easy, we, we typically don't have and have the uh, willpower to go and make that happen. There's a third option. You can register online at the website www.ok.gov. You can register online. Get registered to vote. And then come November, go vote. Okay? You got to vote. But if you fill out one of these forms that's available, it has to be postmarked by October 14th. Okay? If you want to see change happen in our country, this is one of the pieces of the puzzle to do. Obviously, we've got to pray. No candidate is going to be able to change what's going on in our country. Amen? Only God can change the hearts and the lives of men. So we've got to pray. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. Hear me say this. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. There is no perfect candidate. Period. The only one who would be the perfect candidate already has a job, and his job is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So... We're not going to find a perfect candidate, but what we do have to find is what do these people stand for? What's the platform they're standing on? Get, go out, find the, um, the, the Republican Party's platform, find the Democratic Party's platform, and read them. One party stands for the right to life, one party stands for the opposite of that, the, the right to abort a baby one minute before they're born. You've got those two choices, okay? Read, educate yourself, get involved in the process, find out which one lines up closest with what the Bible says, and vote that way, okay? Okay? We've got to get back to voting what the Bible says, not what my personal opinion is. We've got to get back to voting what the Bible says and not what's going to benefit me the most. So we've, we've got to be involved in the process, okay? So get educated, get registered, and then go vote. So enough with the politics, let's get on with the message, but get registered and then vote, okay? Now, moving on. Previously in our, in our series over the last couple of weeks... We've been talking about, and we've given every family the opportunity to have one of the books. Take God at His Word. Uh, this week, you should be reading Chapter Four. This coming week, with your family, take a night, read it with your family, pray through what you're learning there as a family. Last week, we talked about the blessing of tithing. We talked about how our lives that, that, that's the beginning point. If we want God's blessing in our lives, we've got to start there. But if we don't start there, we're just a thief. As, as Pastor put it earlier, um, tithing is, is not giving. It's just not being a thief. I, that's a great one. It's true. And so we, we, we talked about that and how we've got to put that into, into practice. This week, I want to talk about discipline. Yes, I, yes, I said that. I want to talk about discipline. Because nobody <laughs> is going to get where we want to go until we have a practical plan to get there. Now, there's an old quote that says that if you fail to plan, you... Anybody know it? Plan to fail? Anybody ever heard that? If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Because without a plan, you're going to get exactly where you intended to go. Nowhere. We've got to have a plan. We've got to put a structure in place. Today I want to talk about a practical plan for generous giving. It's If we're going to develop a heart of generosity, if we're going to help develop a life for that, we've got to get the process in place correctly. This morning, we're going to look at three things. We're going to talk about how we think, how we act, and how we feel. Okay? So we're going to start with our thinking. Because if we don't get our thinking correctly, we're going to miss out on everything else. We've got to think like a godly servant. We've got to think like a godly servant. When we talk about finances and developing a generous heart, we've got to realize that God owns everything. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad that at the end of the day, it's not your responsibility, but it's his? We've just got to learn to trust him, but we've got to think like a godly servant, and we're going to miss out on the the understanding that it's not ours to begin with. God owns everything. I'm going to give you four verses to write down and look at. They'll be on the screens, but we're not going to read them. The reason I want you to write them down and look at them is because I want us to really get the idea that it's not ours. God owns everything. In Genesis 24, 35 Here we see that Abraham's servant, he's gone to see Laban, and he tells him that God has blessed Abraham and made him a rich man. How did Abraham get there? God blessed him. And his servant is telling Laban, hey, listen, my master, God has blessed him and given him everything he needs and made him a rich man. Because God is the one that did it. In Psalm 50 verse 10, it says that when the, this is the verse that the, the psalmist famously penned in the verse that says that God owns a, the cattle on a thousand hill, one of my favorite verses. You know, if God owns the cattle on a thousand hill and you're hungry, he can slaughter one of those cows and feed your family. God can take care of you, but God owns it all. A thousand hills, there's no way we can contemplate what a thousand hills looks like, even in the mountains, because you can't tell where one ends and the one begins. And that's what the psalmist is trying to say, is listen, he owns everything. But the beginning of that verse is what matters for every animal is mine, God said, right? It all belongs to him. Whatever you need, he can make happen in your life. In Acts 17, 25, Paul is preaching here at Mars Hill about how Jesus is the unknown God and doesn't have need of anything or anyone because he created it all. So at the end of the day, does God need me or you? Probably no. Why? Because he's God. He created us for fellowship, but at the end of the day, God will accomplish what God wants to accomplish. He allows us to play part of the journey, but we've got to play our part and trust him. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, Timothy's giving instructions to rich people not to put their hope in their wealth, but to put it in God who provides us with everything to enjoy. God provides everything. We live in a land that it's easy to say, hey, I'm taking care of, it. We don't have to trust God, but at the end of the day, we've got to realize we've got to trust God. We have to use what God has given us to bring him glory and him satisfaction and not be stingy and selfish. We have to develop a heart of generosity. After all, God is the one who gave it to us. Now, my kids love McDonald's. Have you ever heard of the McDonald's rule? you ever heard of the McDonald's rule? The McDonald's rule is this. When your kids say they want to go eat at McDonald's, you have to go as a parent, I don't care how many times you try to avoid it, guess where you're gonna end up? McDonald's. No, Daddy, I don't wanna go eat Mexican food. I want McDonald's. Then you're sitting there eating Mexican food. I want McDonald's. No, it's garbage. (laughs) Sorry. But one of those million times we've been to McDonald's, my son has developed this idea that, that French fries are the only thing that you need to eat to live. As a kid, apparently I had that same thought because my, uh, my, my dad's first pastor, Brother, uh, uh, brother uh, Newton, Calvin Newton, we would go to eat when I was a little kid there in Shakota and they would take us to eat after church or whatever. We sit sitting there and uh, he said, brother, New, brother Newton would say, Brother Travis, what are you going to have to eat? French fry! And so they would refer to me as Brother French fry because I would throw up both hands just like I was shouting hallelujah and say, French fry. One day we were on a family vacation, not really, we were at general council in St. Louis. My dad was out on the, on the patio praying there at the hotel, and I walked out and he was praying. I guess he had kind of gotten a little worked up, you know, in his prayer time. I mean, Hallelujah. And I threw up both hands, french fry. <laughs> so all I'm saying is it runs in the family, you know. But Cade, we go in, and here's Cade, and he's like, hey, I want some French fries. It doesn't matter what burger you get him as long as you get him a large French fry, and he gets whoever's French fries don't eat them, right? So that's the goal. So we get him a large French fry, we go in. And I remember one time we're sitting there, and it's just me and the kids. Rachel uh, was doing something else, and, and of course, I get stuck at McDonald's. Imagine that. So here we are. We're we're there, and and, and I reach over to take a French fry because I don't get them because they're too good, and I can't stop eating. So that's how I fight that fight. So I've got my, my chicken sandwich. I'm I mean, I said, "Hey, here, I'm on a French fry." And Kate slaps my hand. No, no, Daddy. <laughs> for real, huh? He said, "Now my French fries. Get your own." And I look at him, and in my mind, I'm processing this perfect opportunity to teach him a lesson. Kate, and this is what's playing in my mind. Okay, who do you think gave you those French fries? Who paid for those French fries? Did you get out your wallet and pay for them? No. Do you have a job to earn the money to pay for said French fries? No. I did. And if I wanted 10 orders of large French fries, I'll go buy them. I gave you those French fries. Because all I want him to do is to have a heart that says, Sure, Dad, you can have anything you want. You gave it to me in the first place. And God's the same way with us. He wants us to be able to step back and say, you know what, you gave it all to me, I'll give anything you want back to you, it's all yours to begin with. We've got to allow that thought process to begin to permeate our lives, not all I have to do is start with giving 10%, all I have to do is give 10% and then I'm good. As long as I get my tithe right, I'm okay. In the New Testament, radical generosity is the measure that was used. The tithe was just the beginning place. Everyone participated in that. They didn't need to elaborate on it's important to tithe because it was just a part of their lives. But radical generosity is the mark of the New Testament church. We've got to develop that. We've got to get to the process where we think God owns everything and I'm going to trust him. Because when we understand that God owns everything, it gives us balance. How does it give us balance? Like this. If my income is down, I trust and believe that God is going to provide. And if my income is up, then I trust and serve him with what I have, and I expect that he's going to continue to do what he's continued to do, and I'm going to continue to be generous just the same. We've got to get our balance correct there. When we think like a godly servant, it helps us to keep our materialistic desires in check. We're headed into Christmas, and you know what happens? stuff Anybody ever had a severe case of stuffitis? It's where you just need more stuff and more stuff. You don't really care about the stuff, but what it is, you just need more stuff. It's what our kids do, right? They need that latest greatest toy. I gotta have that toy, Daddy. Oh, I need that toy. I need that. I need and then, like three hours later, it's broken and laying over in some corner, and they've moved back on to the toy that they really cared about in the first place, right? Stuffitis. Our materialistic desire gets us in trouble if we're not careful. But when we know that God owns everything, we want to please Him with our spending decisions. We want to make him happy in how we do things and we guard against those selfish desires. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10, we're going to see where, where Paul writes and really deals with this. It says, but godliness with contentment leads to great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For, for we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out. Amen? That's what it says. Now, my dad used to love to tell me, I help bring you into this world, boy, and I could take you out. Do what I said. That was a perfect chance for you to say amen right there, Dad. Oh, yeah. Verse, nine says, uh, uh, verse 8 says, but, uh, but, we have, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish, uh, many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, but, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Now, we don't, we, we, we don't really like that verse, The love of money. What's the love of money that's evil? Money itself is not evil, it's benign. But the love of money, the love of desire and treasure that we want to hang on to, that's where the evil is at. And many people have been led astray because we get into large amounts of debt, we overspend, and we, it, it, it damages us. It damages our reputation. It damages our ability to fulfill God's plan for our lives. Before making a purchase, why don't we step back and say, you know what, is this something, God, you want me to have? Is this something that, that would be okay with you? If we would realize at the end of the day, we're gonna have to give an account for how we spent it, might make it a little bit easier for us. Here's the thing if we understand God owns it and I'm just managing it, I'm just a servant doing what He tells me to do, it makes it really easy to say no to things, right? But when we think we own it, it's easy for us to go, yeah, I'm gonna spend that on I'm gonna do this, and it's all His. So let's remember that it's all his and begin to think that way as we spend. God wants us to enjoy what he gives us. Don't get me wrong. Verse 17 in chapter six, we looked at it already. It says he wants us to enjoy everything he's given us, but he wants us to be wise with our spending decisions, and we've gotta get our thinking correct to do that. When we get our thinking correct, we can get our actions correct because, number two, we've gotta act like a trusted manager. We've gotta act like a trusted manager. So we've gotta think right, so we can act right. Right thinking leads to right actions. All the time. Right thinking. If your thinking is wrong, it doesn't matter how much you want to do the right thing. We can't do the right thing because our thinking is wrong. We think, we begin to rationalize and justify things, and we get it all out of balance. Once we get our thinking correct like a godly servant, then we'll know how to act like a trusted manager of God's resources. Our money and our hearts are tied together. Matthew 6 19 through 21 tells us, don't collect for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if we want to have a more spiritual heart, we've got to make spiritual decisions about where we put our money and where it's spent. Giving to God is a sign of, of, uh, is, a, is a spiritual ministry. And being generous is a mark of a maturing believer. I'm not talking about generosity just in the, in the fact of what, how much money did you give. I can care less how much money you give. What I care about is is there a generous heart behind it. I really want to emphasize that. God doesn't look at you and say, oh, you know what, you only gave $10. He didn't care about that. What God cares about is, were you generous with what you were doing? Now, did he give us a baseline? Yes. He said, start with a 10. But a generous heart goes above and beyond that in lots of areas. If we want God to consider us trusted managers, then we must give generously to support his work. We can be both cheerful and generous because we know that God's going to bless our efforts. When we're cheerful and we're generous, God loves a cheerful giver, amen? Amen. He doesn't want us to give out of compulsion, out of uh, some undue burden. He wants us to do it because we want to. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul gives some real practical, inspired direction for keeping our financial management on track. And it says this, now about the collection for the saints, you should do the same as I instructed instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you should set something aside and save in keeping with how he prospers so that no collection will will need to be made when I come. Did you notice what he said there? He said, first of all, give regularly on the first day of the week. That's what he said. On the first day of the week, each of you should set aside something. He said we should give personally, each of you. So number one, give regularly. Number two, give personally. Number three, he said give systematically. In other words, set it aside. Plan for what you're going to do. you got to plan for that. You know what you can't do? Come in and decide that you wanted to give $100 to missions when you spent... 120 of it yesterday, and you don't have the 100 left. Amen? you got to plan for that. And fourthly, we've got to give proportionally. He says to give in keeping with your income. No one expects anybody who doesn't have $10 to give 20 Can God bless you so you can? Yeah. That's a step of faith. But on a regular basis, if your income, I'm going to use round numbers here, okay? If our income is $10,000, let's say $12,000 a year, If our income is $12,000 a year, $1,000 a month, how in the world could you give $24,000? It's not practical, is it? We've got to get it into proportion with what God is blessing us with now. The other thing that I found to be true is very seldom does anyone get entrusted with more than they've proven faithful to, to, to handle. So if you want God to trust you with more, then prove yourself trustworthy with more, with what you've got so you can be trusted with more. Because right thinking leads to right actions and right actions lead to right emotions. So first of all, we've got to think correctly so that we can act like a trusted manager so that we can feel like a precious heir. Feel like a precious heir. Now here's the thing, that word precious, I'm gonna be honest with you, I was like... Should I use that word or not? It kind of sounds a little, a little girly. I'm not sure I even want to use it. You know what I'm saying? they are like, my daughter is precious. And that's the word that I would use making fun of my brother. <laughs> that was precious, Will. Amen. It would take... it's, just, it's just not a word that... But when you understand that word... You and I are precious to God. God doesn't look down at us and go, well, man, I really love Marvin. Eh, but Eugene, God looks down at each of us and says, you are my precious child. My, my precious, not, not, not like Lord of the Rings, my precious, okay? Like, but he looks down at us and he says, I treasure you. You are valuable beyond what you can imagine. You are precious to me. You are so valuable. When we stop and think about it, God can bless us with anything. But at the end of the day, what's the one thing he spent his son on? Us. He didn't spend his son so we could build buildings. He didn't spend his son so that we could look at the nice things we have in life. He spent his son because you and I are the most valuable possession he will ever have. You and I, we are precious. And not just that, but he takes an outsider, somebody who was far from him, somebody who in our lives, whether we realize it or not, were much like Paul and we persecuted the faith. Whether you put someone to death or not is irrelevant. We still spit on the very cross of Christ in our actions and in the way that we believe towards him until he arrested our heart and said, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are precious to me, and we accept that, we're brought in, and we are made his kids. We are made an heir with him. Listen, I love Cade. I love Cecily. And I love Hayes. Hayes is just as much my son as Cade and Cecily are. He has been grafted in. He has been adopted into my family. He is a part of Team Jenkins. He runs around, stinks just like us. He is one of us just the same. Guess what? God looks down on me and you and says, you are mine. You walk like me. You talk like me. You smell like me. I'll take you. You're mine. We're precious. If I'm a precious heir, loved, so beloved that Jesus would give his son, you're not feeling this like I am. If I am his heir, so beloved that he gave his son to pay a price I owed, if he loves me like that, then I should start acting like that. I should start feeling like that. I should allow that overwhelming desire to fulfill his purpose and plan in my life to outrule everything else. I'm his. You are his. He loves you just like he loves me, and he loves me just like he loves you. Now, listen, let's, let's be honest. Sometimes we question this, right? I, I do. I do. I think, how in the world, Lord, do you love me as much as you love Pat Spires? She is the sweetest, kindest, most loving person I know. How do you love me like her? It's no way. Lord, how could you love me like you do Eugene? One of the godliest men I know. You want somebody praying for you. It's Eugene. You want him and Zoli in your corner, right? How in the world could you love? How could you love me as much as? And we start filling in the blank because we start comparing ourselves. Right? Come on, let's be honest. We do. In our moments of, of, of kindness with our words and saying, oh, they're wonderful. I wish I could be. What we're doing is we're placing this comparison of. I need to be like them so that God will love me like he does them. Man, Lord, if I was just as generous as Pastor Mike is, then maybe, no. At the end of the day, what God wants is for me to feel like the most precious of his heirs. Because that's how he loves me. And that's how he loves you. And he wants each of us to feel that God loves us that way. Here's the thing. God wants to train us. We have to train our kids, right? How many of you you trained your children? If you you have boys and girls, you trained your boys to lift up the toilet seat. Because if you didn't, your daughter's going to let you know or your wife's going to let them know, right? We train them. We train our children to clean up. Hey, you know what? You made a mess. Clean it up. Uh, We've trained our kids that on Thursday night when they get home that it's time to take out the trash so that the trash truck will get it on Friday. This is like why you have kids, isn't it? You train them to do the stuff you don't want to do. Amen. It's important stuff. They need to figure it out, right? So you train them. So, so we're in this process. Kate, the other day, I said, Hey, Kate, I need you to take out the trash. I'm doing something. It was yesterday morning. We're getting ready for a birthday party for my nephew. And so I've, I, I'm doing what I do, right? I'm making the queso because the Lord loves queso. And at the marriage supper of the lamb, I'm telling you, Jesus is going to say, Pass the queso. <laughs> so I, I'm doing my part. Kate, I need you to take out the trash. It, I put one of your brother's diapers in it. It's got to go. For real. Okay, so he gets it, rounds everything up, takes it out, goes back to his room doing his thing. So I go and I've got my hands full. I get the, the drawer open where the trash can's at, and I go to put it in there and catch it just in time. Because we didn't put a bag back in there. Right? Didn't, didn't quite finish the process. You know what? God does the same thing with us on a regular basis. God will will put something in our hands, and he says, hey, listen, I want you to do this with it. Do we finish the process or not? If we finish the process, there's more that we move on to. But if we don't, it's kind of like failing a test that you have to keep taking until you pass it. And on a regular basis, we have to keep passing that test. And the finances are a great way for God to do that, because it's a tangible way that reveals the intent of our heart. Because we know we've got to take care of our finances so we can provide for our family. Nobody wants to go through a foreclosure. Nobody wants to go through having our car uh, uh, repossessed or anything like that. Nobody wants to go. There. So we take care of our stuff. We don't want to go home to, to a house that doesn't have electricity. I'm not saying that we don't have difficult times in our life. What I am saying is this. Nobody wants to go through that. So we take care of our business. But when God says, I want you to trust me with that because I've got more than you could ever imagine. Sometimes I go, oh, yeah. we get a little bit sticky finger-ish, Right? God will use our money and our possessions in order to prepare us for his kingdom. If God owns everything and can make everything, it's obvious that he could do everything without any help from us. But he gives us resources and lets us decide how to use them because he's got a special plan for us. Back in 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19, it says this. Paul said, instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share storing up for themselves a good reserve for the age to come, so that, what? So that why? They may take hold of life that is real. God wants us to be rich in good deeds. It's an important part, right? Does he want you to be rich in life? I believe yes. He wants all of your needs. We've talked about this. He, He wants you to abound in every way. But he also wants us to be rich in good deeds. Being kind and generous to everyone that's around us. He wants us to be willing to share. We all want our kids to do that, don't we? I want my kids to share, especially them french fries. (laughs) We want that. Why would we think our Heavenly Father doesn't want the same thing from us? He wants you and me to share. He wants us to be willing to give up whatever he's placed in our hands He has more. We've got to stop looking at it that he's taking something away from us. He gives us an opportunity to discover his truth for ourselves because he wants us to have life that is truly life. Listen, living apart from God, I don't know how people do it. How do they they miss out on the greatest journey there is, and that's following Jesus? How do they miss out on, on what God has most for them? God wants to provide for us. We know this, that God wants to provide for us. He wants us to enjoy his blessings, but God does not want us to be afraid of trusting him. Some of us think in fear or we even say in fear, if God will meet my needs, then I'll trust him. Lord, if you want me to give that $100, give it to me first. I have 100 but I need it. Lord, I know you said, I, we want him to do his part first, but he wants us to do our part, and that's trusting in him, stepping out in faith. God simply says, trust me and I'll meet every one of your needs. The story of the, of the poor widow found in, in Mark chapter 12 shows God's miraculous provision, I believe. On the screens it says this, verse 41 through, 40, 41 through 44. It says, sitting across from the temple treasury, he, being Jesus and the disciples, watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. First of all. God's watching how we put our money in. When it comes to our tithe and our offering, he's watching how we do it. You faithful, doing it with generosity, you're doing it in, in faith and trust, he's watching. I may not be, other people may not be, but he is. Never forget that God's watching. Many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, I assure you, this poor widow has put in more then all of those giving to the temple treasury, for they gave out of their surplus, but she gave out of her poverty, has, but, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she possessed, all that she had to live on. Now, to me right here, the, this, this widow demonstrates her personal faith and trust. She's demonstrating it. If God doesn't provide, I have nothing left to give. Can I say this? She's not the one that ran around and told everyone that. She didn't put it on Facebook. I just gave my last two cents to the church. I don't know how I'm going to eat or live or survive. Now, I'm not saying if you're in need that you shouldn't let someone know, but she didn't broadcast it. She trusted the Lord with it. She trusted God. (laughs) What a concept, right? Come on, we've all been there. We've all had those moments where we needed somebody. But you know what? How many times do we run to our friends first before we ever run to the Lord? We've got to step back and say, I know that God can and I know that he will. She gave all that she had and trusted God to provide for her. Now, if we're going to take God's word seriously like the widow did, we've got to, we've got to be honest about this text because it does not tell us what happened to her. It doesn't say specifically what happened with her or, or, or the woman. Uh, what, what happened to her generous gift. But the Bible does say in 2 Corinthians 9 6 that if we sow sparingly, we reap sparingly. And if we sow generously, we'll reap generously. The Bible makes it plain that when you give generosity, you will reap it the same. So consider these questions. I'm going to give you three questions to consider. Consider this the next time that you're wondering, what should I do? How do I do this? Did God take care of them? Did God take care of the widow? Did God take care of the, the, the widow in the, in the Old Testament when Elijah told her, you know what, go and get... She has nothing else except for this small vial of oil. And he says, you know what? Go get all of the containers that you can and begin to pour. And it never ran out until she had filled every container she had so that she could go and pay the collectors so they wouldn't take her son away. Did God provide for her? Yes. So did God take care of her? Did he pour out his blessings on her? Or did she stay destitute? Obviously she didn't. So if God can provide for her, Malachi 3, 9, 10, 9 and 10 says, you know what, that if you will return the tithe to the storehouse, I'll throw open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you, you won't be able to contain it all. And in Luke 6, 38, Jesus said, give and it will be given back to you. Press down, shaken together shall men give into you. And then in 2 Corinthians 9, 10 and 11, it says that God will enrich you in every way. Listen, if God has these plans in place for us, Shouldn't we feel like precious heirs? Shouldn't we feel like, you know what? I know God's going to provide. I know he's going to take care of it. If he did it for them, he's going to do it for me too. If he can take care of the widow, surely he'll take care of my needs. I'll tell you a a story as we close. There was a a respected preacher who grew up during the Depression. When he was five or six years old during the Depression, his faithful Christian father Sought to teach him the power of giving. So one Saturday, after this young boy had accumulated about 35 or 40 cents, his father reminded him that the next day was the Lord's day and that he should give a portion of his money to God. His dad also told him, You know what? Whatever you give, don't worry about what you give. Anytime you give to God, don't worry about it. To prove the point, the father said, I'm going to return to you whatever you give to the Lord. So don't worry about losing your money. Some of us wish that somebody here would do that for us, right? The preacher remembers clearly what he thought when he heard his dad's words. What? You want me to put some of my money into the, into the offering plate? Are you crazy? I'll never see it again. His earthly father's promise seemed a lot less real than those cold, hard coins in his pocket. He thought about putting in a nickel, but when the collection plate passed, he only put in a penny. That's all I can do. After the service, his dad asked him, "Said, well, how much did you put in the offering?" The young boy admitted, "I only gave a penny, Dad." His dad reached into his pocket and placed a nickel in his son's hand, which was a return of 500 percent. The boy was stunned. Because he realized in that moment that he had sold his earthly father and his heavenly father short. It was in that small transaction that he made an ironclad decision to trust the words and the power of God. Maybe you're here today and you would just say, you know what, Pastor Travis, I've I've really been struggling with generosity and developing that in my life. You've got to remember it starts with a plan, it starts with how we think so that then we can act on it, so then we can feel like it. It only happens when we, uh, generosity in developing that only happens on purpose. You're never going to develop a generous heart unless you make the choice that you want to. It starts with our thinking. We've got to think what God's word says and allow that to be what our thought process is defined by. Then we've got to feel, what we've got to act on what we know, what we've been taught, so that we can feel what we're supposed to feel. Thinking, acting, and then feeling. It's the stair step. It's the way it works. I want to give all of you a little homework this week, if that's all right, in honor of it being everybody's in school. Some of you thought, I'll never have homework again. Guess what? Sunday's your day. Your homework this week is to go home and examine your own hearts, your own lives, and see if there's anything in your heart and life that doesn't line up with what you know to be true. Is there an area in your life that you would say, I don't have a generous heart in this and God is dealing with me. Maybe you don't know the truth about it. Maybe you don't know what God's word says but maybe you do and your homework is to then put it into action. Some of you have been, maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, you know what, I'm struggling to be generous because I don't feel like God loves me. I don't feel it. I don't feel like if he said it, he's gonna do it. Listen, I grew up knowing that I was going to feel the wrath of my father if he said, if you do it again, you're going to get a spanking and then did it again. I knew I was going to get it. Why would I doubt God any any more? If my earthly father taught me consistency, why would I doubt that my heavenly father is going to teach it to me? He'll be consistent in fulfilling his promises. (laughs) Listen, if... If we know consistency, how can we not know that God is consistent in fulfilling his promises? We, we, we're good at running to, to God's wrath. But remember, God is a God of blessing. He loves us. Does he sometimes chastise us and chase us? Yeah. But it's because he loves us. And his blessings far outweigh anything else. So trust that he's going to fulfill his blessing. God wants you to prosper. God wants you to be in good health. God wants these wonderful things for you, so trust him in that. But we've got to start right where we're living, first of all. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, maybe you'd be here and you'd say, you know what, Pastor Travis, my heart is not right with God. Would you be honest enough to say, I am far from Jesus? We can't develop a generous heart and fulfill God's plan for our life if we don't know him or if we've allowed sin to continue to creep in. So if you're here and you'd say, you know what? I've allowed sin in my life and my heart is far from God. Would you lift up a hand? There's nobody looking around but me. Anybody at all? Okay. Anybody else? Okay. Put your hands down. Anybody else? Okay. Folks, here's where the rubber meets the road. We've got to make a choice to do something. See, when we start a plan you got to put that plan into action. We can always talk about we're going to go on a diet, but if we never go on a diet, we've just been talking about it. We can talk about that we're going to fast and pray, but if you don't pray, all you did was fast. All you did was go on a diet. You weren't really fasting. You just lost some weight in the process. Here's the thing. We've got to put a plan into action, and it starts by making sure our heart's right with Jesus. So if you raised your hand, and you should have, in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to come down around these altars We're going to have a a prayer team member who's going to be here and they're going to pray with you because we want to agree with you in the process. How many of you here today, before we do that, would say, you know what, Pastor Travis, I need to develop a generous heart. Would you slip up a hand? I need to develop a generous life and I need God's help to do that. Anybody else? Yeah, see those hands? All right. If you would, all across the room, I'd like for you to all stand up. All across the room. Don't run to the door. We're almost done. Here's the thing. This is where the rubber meets the road. If I could, I'd like for our prayer team, our elders, prayer partners, if you will just come and make your way. If you raised your hand or you should have, I'm gonna ask you to get out of your seat. If you raised your hand for anything, develop a generous heart or because your heart, you've allowed sin in your life and you're separated from God. I want to ask you to get out of your seat. I want to ask you to make your way down around one of these altars because this is where the rubber meets the road. We've got to put some action to what it is we're committing to. So if you raised your hand or you should have, would you get out of your seat? Be brave. Make your way down around the altar so we can pray with you. We want to agree with you that God's blessing would be yours, but that starts with having a right heart, a heart that says, I want to do what God wants me to and I'm going to uh, sacrifice the sin in my life so that he can be first and foremost. Anybody else? You raise your hand or you should have. Come on, let's give these a, a hand. Anybody else? Come on. All right. Anybody else? Come on. You raised your hand or you should have. Come on. Come on.